In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are times when we take part in a little private action that ingrains in us a sense of false knowledge about persons, situations, perhaps even events that are from a few centuries ago or events that may even occurred a few years ago. And that private action is called assuming or making an assumption about something or another. It is typical and it is everywhere. Some of the plots of books and films are based upon assumptions. There are examples from history of assumptions changing the course of a policy, a war, or even a stance. Just remember the difference in assumptions made by Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill when it came to the machinations of Adolf Hitler and the beginning of the Second World War. Sometimes assumptions are good and healthy. We assume that tomorrow is a normal day. And so we leave in plenty of time for our appointments or our job. Or we assume that someone we are close to loves us. From time to time, we talk about some sense of these assumptions as being knowledge or predictive or the status quo element in our lives. All of us assumed that this morning at 1030, we were going to celebrate the Holy Eucharist and that I would be standing here right about now preaching this sermon to you. But there are other types of assumptions that are not as good, not as healthy. Some of these assumptions can be dangerous and insidious, like assuming someone is no good because of the color of their skin or because of their family name. Some assumptions might even produce lasting enmity between nations like the French and the British or the now revived animosity between the Russian nation against the rest of the world. Some assumptions get us into trouble and show an uglier side of humanity, even an uglier side of Christianity, and dare I say, an uglier side of our own very selves. And it is into assumptions about Jews and Gentiles that we walk right into with our reading from the Acts of the Apostles today. St. Peter is telling a story about an event that dominated the previous chapter of the book of Acts. And in that story, he gives the apostles and believers in Judea a first-hand eyewitness account of what occurred in Caesarea in the home of Cornelius, a centurion from the Italian cohort, and a Gentile. Now, immediately, warning bells should be going off in our minds. And if we are like the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem hearing this story, assumptions are made, or at least questions are being asked. And the reason is this. Simon Peter, a Jew by birth, and a practicing Jewish Christian has gone into the home of a Gentile. Strike one. Peter, more than likely, ate with them. Strike two. And he has baptized people into Christ without them being circumcised. 
strike three. Everything that St. Peter has done in regards to his time and association with Cornelius is not just suspect, but it is a clear and distinct violation of the Torah. And for Christians who have been Jews first, it raises many questions, perhaps even doubts about Peter, and likely they are now questioning his judgment. To understand how earth-shaking this undoubtedly was, we would need to equate this incident to something that is under, un, underliningly abhorrent to us as a culture and a society. It would be like someone purposely burning the stars and stripes or having a church graffitied and vandalized. This is really a big deal. Peter finds himself needing to defend his actions to the people who are still in Jerusalem and to give an account of his thoughts, his motivations, and his reasoning in this matter. To do so, Peter begins to tell this story that seems odd to us about this sheet coming down from heaven. Much like what we heard last week from St. John's Revelation, this also is a revelation an apocalypse, an unveiling that Peter is seeing and experiencing. When we come to understand, as Peter did, and later the Jewish, uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem did, as they heard tell of this vision, this vision of the sheet being held by the four corners and being filled with animals that violated Jewish kosher laws, and then, of course, this voice that tells Peter to kill and eat what he sees. What they understand and what we come to understand is that we are seeing a restoral of creation that is taking place. The sheet represents the entire world being held together by the four cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west. And what was known to encompass the entire world. And being filled with these animals that are unclean, or perhaps we might say foreign to Peter, represents all the nations, all the peoples of the world. We must remember that Jews of this time did not associate more than they needed to with people from other tribes and nations. They were, in a sense, isolationists to keep their culture and their religion pure, to keep it holy to keep it clean. They understood that they were a sanctified and consecrated nation unto themselves to display the power and the glory of the Lord God to the rest of the world. All the other nations, and particularly those of the Romans and the Greeks who occupied them, as well as the Babylonians and the Syrians who took them into exile, were pagan worshippers. They, they worshipped pagan gods or multiple gods, or even turned the elements of creation like water, wind, fire, and earth into deities themselves. They were idolaters, and it was known in Judaism that worshipping idols was indeed bad for your health. The turning of the vision is the enigmatic phrase, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. 
And once again, we have an assumption, this time made by Peter. Seeing all of these unclean animals and hearing the voice declare to him to kill and to eat, Peter assumes something. There is this hesitation about the command from heaven. Surely, Peter may have said, surely this can't be right because I keep the law. I have never violated any of these rules about what is permissible to eat. How do we square up God making something unclean into something clean, safe, and indeed proper to eat? And this is where we must once again understand that the death and the resurrection of our blessed Lord is the inauguration of the new kingdom, the new creation, the restoring of all things as they had originally been intended. When the animals were created during the various days of creation in Genesis, there was no distinction between clean and unclean. They were simply created and pronounced as good. The same can be said about the peoples and the nations of the world. They were simply created male and female, told to go forth and multiply, and they were pronounced as good. There was no implication that these people over here are better or more well-loved by God than those people over there. However, and we all know the story rather well, sin entered into this world. And to keep at least a portion of the world performing God's will, Torah, and the distinction between clean and unclean, Gentile and Jew, were used to preserve a people from whom the Messiah, our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, could come into this world and to claim it as his own. But now that Jesus has come, now that he has won the victory over death, this creation is being restored, being reclaimed, and being made into the way that God has always intended it to be. With that restoring work, we now know what St. Peter learned in this vision. God's salvific work is not intended only for a small subset of the world's peoples, but for all the nations of the world, all the tribes. And there is not anything that God has declared clean that isn't. And that includes the peoples of the world. What St. Peter recalls in his story and what astounded him and those who heard him in Jerusalem was the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, not upon the Jews, but upon Gentiles who had a moment much like the very first Pentecost event. And this is where assumptions cratered. This is where all these good and faithful Jewish Christians had to reevaluate 
and come to an understanding of how God works. For them, this is a watershed moment, or the promises of the law, the promises of the prophets, and the promises of Jesus all meet headlong, and they come to a new understanding, a true understanding of what the whole story of Israel's meaning, the whole story of God working through creation and the redemption of the world meant. This same combination of events, of assumptions, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what confronts you and me each day. Sometimes when we look at people, perhaps even our neighbors, or people who have talked to us and are attempting to start or have started to set their lives right, perhaps even discussing in some detail a conversion experience or a point of turning. There is sometimes a doubt that invades our thoughts about them. We say things like, well, I wonder how long this is going to last. Or, I wonder what his angle is. Or even, I don't think she's being all that genuine. In that way, we are sometimes like these believers in Jerusalem who wanted not only an account of the story, but also to take Peter to task for even associating with these Gentiles and helping steer them into faith. Rather, we all need to be more like Peter in this incident. Be ready to listen to the Holy Spirit and to respond to the vision our Lord has given us for his will in this world. Yes, we do need to be discerning. And yes, we do need to weigh and to judge our actions carefully as we proceed. But we also need to learn to recognize when God is truly at work in this world. And when we see it, when we experience it. Not only should we praise and give thanks to God for that work, but also we need to proclaim it out to others as both a sign of faith and as encouragement. That is indeed what the believers in Jerusalem did. After their initial shock, their initial critique of Peter, they turn from a somewhat exclusive and protectionistic stance to one of joy and awe. They were silenced, and that silence gave way to praising God. Because even the Gentiles, even the whole rest of the world, were able to come into the repentance that leads to life. Let us all learn to make assumptions, or make less assumptions, I should say. Let us all learn to be less hasty in our judgment of others, especially those who are working and striving to come to a deeper faith in relationship with our loving Lord. 
Instead, rather, let us say, God has given even to this person and that person and this person over here the repentance that leads to life. Who am I to hinder God? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.